Hello and welcome to Ranking 76, where we're ranking 76 heroes and villains of the American West. I'm Eric. I'm Matt. And it's been a while on this side of the microphone. <laughs> Probably been five weeks since we last recorded something. Oh, I think close to two months. Yeah, it's been... Uh, Sacagawea was obviously the last one we recorded. Uh, obviously, when you're listening to this, we... I think I even explained this in the last episode. We recorded a bunch of, and ahead of time. Because Matt and I were both going to be busy during August, and Eric's now going to be very busy during September. So we've been pushing back this recording date for, I don't know, two weeks? Two weeks, yeah, about that. This is about as close as we've ever gotten to a release date. So, um, well, we're about a week and a half out. So We still got time. We still got time. Plenty of time. And it won't matter to you guys, because it'll be in your headphones anyway. So, um. Is that enough for banter? Is that what we is that is that the banter we're gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> <we have>? <laughs> Not charming enough. <laughs> All right. Today we're finally ending the core of discovery. We have reached L- William Clark. 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 Keep going. You're just gonna say his name three times? That's Beetlejuice. He's going to show up in a mirror. Well, hello there, Eric. I'm Clark. <laughs> Why is he British? Because they all had accents back then, dude. Yeah, but he's from Virginia. <laughs> Where's this British coming from? Hey, good day, mate. Oh, goodness. Oh, no. Uh, someone's <laughs> eardrums just burst. No. You might be asking yourself, what is there left to cover on the core of Discovery? Well... On the actual discovery, core discovery itself, not a whole lot. So we're actually not going to touch about it a lot today. But Clark had a full career outside of the core of discovery. So it's it's, it's he's a busy boy is what I, is what I'm saying. So the core was just a, a blip in his uh, life. Yes, it was. It was barely it barely registered on his life. It seems like which you know that's pretty interesting because for like Sacagawea and uh, Lewis, it was like their whole life. That was their. It was the event, and now it's to me obviously like Clark's. This is Clark's like thing he's famous for, but he he lives until eighteen thirty eight, and the core of discovery. Uh, finished in 1806 so he has basically 30 years of a career after that did he just use the core as a stepping stone then like this the core like propelled him into kind of probably not to the heights that you would imagine but we'll also get into that at the end of it so it's going to be a lot of lead up and then it'll kind of feel like really it go i cue up like the screeching brakes sound effect when we get to the core of discovery because it's going to be like yep it happened and now we're moving on kind of thing but yeah he so getting into the core of the 30 years later <laughs> basically <laughs> but yeah he's he's an interesting guy i hope uh hopefully hopefully people enjoy this one it's probably not as action-packed as lewis's episode was but he's definitely a more important figure like long term i feel than lewis and just in my own personal bias i am more drawn towards clark than i am lewis just because he just seems like a he seems like someone you could have a beer with and he would be a good guy but we'll get into it Anyway, William Clark was born on August 1st, 1870, and is the second youngest of 10 children. God dang, man. They were just popping kids out back then. 
his father is an English immigrant. So, uh, you know, when I said, I'm you know, making fun of you about the British accent. <laughs> yeah. I mean, his father, I mean, you know, <laughs> English immigrant. That's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his father had traveled to the colonies at, for a promised 50 acres of land. And then they shortly accrued more land in Arbemarle. I cannot pronounce that word to save my life. Arbemarle, Marl County, Virginia. Sorry for everyone. Say that three times fast. Jeez. Ar- Arbemarle? Arbemarle? Arbemarle. 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 We've all heard it. If you live in the United States, I feel like it's a fairly you know, famous county, but I just can't pronounce it. It's word garbage in my mouth. Anyway, they're in Virginia. They move just before Clark is born to Caroline County, Virginia, which is much easier for me to say after the death of a bachelor uncle. William's father then became wealthy enough to then start owning slaves because we can't get past the story without talking about slaves, especially in William's case. One of the slaves that was inherited by William's father was named Old York. Why we mention Old York is because Old York will have a son whose name will simply be York, who will actually come along on the core of discovery with William years later. They're initially playmates, but when William becomes of age, he is officially York's master. Awkward. That doesn't put a weird taste in your mouth. Oh, there's a few moments in his life where it's going to get real icky just to give you some warning. Virginia before 1870 was home to numerous tribes of Native Americans, including the Shawnee, the Delaware, only to name a few. Clark would have grown up with names familiar to people we've already covered uh, before, such as Daniel Boone. And what I'm going to try to do in this episode is not say back if you remember from Daniel Boone's episode, because Clark is going to set a record of previous episodes mentioned here. Uh, Tecumseh, Tenskwatawa, we're going to do a little bit of, we haven't done Black Hawk, but Black Hawk will be mentioned. Uh, his brother will be, and he's he's everywhere, it seems like. He's kind of our Forrest Gump at this point. He just kind of pops up everywhere or has his hand in everything. As Americans pushed west, which of course meant more attacks between settlers and the tribes, one of the lesser known wars in colonial slash American history is something called Lord Dunmore's War. Without going into an exorbitant amount of detail and background into it, just know that Lord Dunmore's War was started between the colonial governor of Virginia, the 4th Earl of Dunmore. He sent out militias to quell the tribes, specifically the Shawnee and the Mingo. One of those recruits was William's older brother, George Rogers Clark. George Roger Clark will likely get his own episode, so I'm only going to touch on him very briefly here, but as an appetizer... Even Thomas Jefferson called George Rogers Clark, quote, quote, the most able frontiersman of his generation. And if you look on George Rogers Clark's Wikipedia page, his nicknames list something things as, quote, the conqueror of the Northwest, the Hannibal of the West, or and also the George Washington of the West. His brother, kind of a big deal in the area. <laughs> George Rogers clearly does well to make a name for himself during Lord Dunmore's War, which only lasts for a brief period of time of about six months in 1774. But he does rise to become a brigadier general in what would loom a huge shadow over his siblings. When the Revolutionary War starts, George Rogers would take course in the fighting 
and leading troops in the Western theater of the war when he fought, when he sieged when he sieged and took Fort Sackville in 1779. The Clark family moved to Kentucky in 1758, and they take the Yaha River down. The area where they're crossing is the area of the Fort Stanwix Treaty of 1868. If you remember that, that was when the Iroquois made a deal with the British that sold a large section of Shawnee hunting land to the British without permission of the Shawnee. They never, you wait, 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 hold it. They yeah, didn't ask permission? What the heck? That is like the first thought. time I've ever heard of them never ask for permission. This this little twist, though, is that it is native tribes making a deal with the British, screwing over another tribe. Right, another another native. tribe, right. I remember, didn't we, I mean, yeah. going oh, with what you hated, didn't we talk about this in, uh, I believe it was, was it like Tecumseh? We briefly uh, the, like touched the origin it. stories of I think it was Tenskwatawa's episode. But yeah, just I, I'm hoping if I've done if I've done a good job explaining things, there's gonna be like this bell in the back of everyone's mind this entire episode of hey, I think I remember them talking about this. And like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's going to be uh it's gonna be um kind of tricky to explain to remind people but also we've already gone into this detail before so again i think i've said that three times now i'm gonna stop saying it but yeah there's get used to that little bell in the back of your head saying i think i know this already (laughs) where have i where do i know this where do i know this actually that'll be a fun little game maybe i'll just tell you hey matt what episode is that from and then you can figure that out (laughs) A quiz from almost a year ago already. So in the aftermath of the Fort Stanwix Treaty, again, which happened back in 1868, we're now in 1785 as the Clarks are moving down the river. This is the same territory where Daniel Boone, if you recall in his episode, and also George Rogers Clark is kind of patrolling the area, trying to keep the peace as much as they can. One night in March 1875, The Clark family is incredibly fortunate because they were snubbed for dinner. Why were they fortunate? Because the family that they were going to dinner with was attacked by native tribes, including they burned the entire cabin down. There were two survivors, the mother and then one child. It is very possible. If If they hadn't been snubbed, they would have been killed. And we wouldn't even be talking about it. Man, could you imagine like the. The ripple effect. <sighs> yes. Yeah, that it's almost incredible. The frontier life, it's incredible how random like living and dying is. It seems like whether it's disease, whether it's animal attacks, tribes uh, attacking, whatever it is, it's almost like you remember like. George Custer's episode where we're like, he doesn't seem to comprehend that surviving the civil war was not a skill. It was complete luck. Kind of the same thing on the, on the frontier. Only there's, there's zero help for you if you get hurt. (laughs) But yeah, there's a lot of these type of stories, especially as you go into Clark's, you know, on the expedition where every corner seemed to be riddled with a danger. It's almost like a bad Indiana Jones movie around every bend. 
Anyway, the family settle near modern-day Louisville, Kentucky, on the Beargrass Creek, where they build two log cabins and begin farming. Clark is now 15 years old, has bright red hair, blue eyes, and a very confident manner, according to his biography, Landon Jones. He enjoyed the outdoors and hunting, very similar to Lewis, and in one ways, and in one of the ways William would work on his accuracy, he would do something called barking squirrels. Any guesses on what barking squirrels might be? They would hide behind a bush going, roof, 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 roof. Yep. I mean, it's a squirrel, so it'd be a tiny bark, but uh, (laughs) (laughs) that was a dog begging for dinner is what that was. (laughs) So what would happen to have William have a barking squirrel? William would take aim at a squirrel in a tree branch, but just below it. So he wouldn't be aiming at the squirrel. He'd be aiming at the branch below it. And when he hit the branch, it would cause the squirrel to jump and bark. And that's how we worked on his aim. Which I guess is better than just shooting the squirrel, but I'm sure that ruined a lot of days. Little, a lot of little squirrel nuts going everywhere. When William turns 19, he joins the Kentucky militia in a 1789. He joins the militia when he's 19 years old in the hopes of having a successful military career just like his brother. In the militia, William would have access to at least some form of education where he would receive a copy of Grammar, History, and Natural Philosophy. Yes, that is one book where you're going to learn about all grammar, all of history, and natural philosophy. Kind of a daunting task for one book, but uh, anyway. He would study astronomy as well as the classics such as Aristotle, Cicero, and Plutarch. Here he also begins a journal that he will continue off and on for really the rest of his life. In that year in August, he writes of his regiment marching and attracting a tribe where, quote, we fired upon them and the other party fired, rushed on, killed four men, four squaws, took two children, 16 horses, and 100 pounds of plunder. We have two men wounded. Very light detail, but you can kind of see that he's, even at a young age, he's starting to write things down. Like he's he's just kind of getting there. You'll also notice if you ever, if you ever choose to read the journals, the journal articles or the journals for Lewis and Clark, it's very clear which one are Clark's because his grammar and his spelling is not good at all. Clark's Uh, Clark's grant. I mean, he, he does not spell words consistently. Like I'm not kidding you. I think he spells Sacagawea's name. Like, 10 different ways (laughs) it's almost like and granted as someone who has terrible spelling himself i am not poking fun of it at all because lord knows and some of the posts i've put on social media i've had to edit them heavily but it is just kind of it kind of humanizes him for me because um when you read some of his quotes it's very short and to the point and it's Kind of how you think he speaks, if that makes any sense. Like, it's mm-hmm. kind of that dictation he had. Do you hear that little bell? Do you do you hear it right now? Right? You're about to hear a little bell. Ding, dong, ding, dong. Most right. of William's fighting happens in the Western theater in small skirmishes, but a majority of the experience happened in what is called Little Turtle's War around 1790. You will remember Little Turtle's War as because it's we talked about it pretty heavily in Tenskwatawa and Tecumseh's episode. 
what happened after the which happened after the conclusion of the American Revolutionary War, where the British signed over land of the Shawnee that they believed was theirs. So again, the deal between the Americans and the British screwing over the Shawnee, who just got screwed over from the Fort Stanwix Treaty. Everyone gets screwed. You get screwed. You get screwed. You get screwed. The Shawnee, you get especially screwed because for whatever reason, you just, that's how that domino falls right now. We want your land. The Americans start encroaching on the land as we've already covered. When the newly formed American government starts building force in the area, William and his brother, George Rogers Clark, are brought in to kind of help quell the fighting or the fighting that's about to happen. William is led by the infamous James Wilkinson. And if Jerry Landry is listening right now, James Wilkinson has been following his podcast in the background for about three years now. James Wilkinson is a name that keeps getting gummed up. So um, if you haven't listened to presidencies of the United States, go listen to him and figure out what James Wilkinson is doing. But anyway, at this time, Wilkinson is holding the title of lieutenant colonel. They march on a camp on the Eel River that belonged to a tribe called the We, the W-E-A tribe, the We tribe, on a name that I'm just going to call the Battle of Old Town. And Matt, in the chat, I'm just going to, I'm going to just send you this word because um, I don't, I want you to pronounce it because Lord knows I can't. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. Good luck. <clears throat> Kenapakamqua. Better than I have. Kenapakomkwa? Uh, what it reminds me of, I'll, I, yeah, I can't pronounce that word, but it almost reminds me of a Russian word. My wife is Russian for anyone who doesn't know, and it's just, it looks very Russian is what it looks like to me. <laughs> but anyway, it's the Battle of Old Town because everyone else probably thought, yeah, I'm not pronouncing that either. Kenapakomkwa. So the We Tribe had been dealing with sickness that Wilkinson was likely unaware about and orders an attack and gains an easy victory. Clark reports in his journal that they, quote, burned and destroyed 70 houses and single roof houses, end quote. They take back 40 prisoners back to the main army where they release 16 and give them a warning for them to return for their homes was, was saying, quote, the Americans will continue to burn their but continue to burn their towns but we are as merciful as strong. Not even so being enough. merciful is burning down everyone's home? Yep. And then letting 16 of the of the 40 prisoners go home. Yep. Hmm. Damn, Great. they're... Whew, that's very merciful. God dang. He then told the tribes to, quote, bury the hatchet and smoke the pipe of peace. You should foolishly persist in, should you foolishly persist in your warfare, the sons of war will let loose upon you and the hatchet will never be buried until the country is desolate and your people humbled to the dust. God dang, James <laughs> Wilkinson. No chill. Zero. Merciful. On the journey back from Old Town, the journey was difficult with continuous rains and flooding. They continually run out of food and the horses would get stuck in the mud or simply just left behind. While trying to cross the White River, three men drown and among with eight to ten other horses just simply crossing this river. William, however, is doing pretty well. He's gaining a reputation. He has been 
under fire twice, and he gets strong praise from his superiors, such as James O'Fallon, who wrote to William's older brother, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Clark, quote, he is a youth of solid and promising parts and is as brave as Caesar. Dang. Which I don't know this, but I feel like I have read or said the quote. Someone is brave as Caesar multiple times. I feel like this is just something they said a lot. This is just who they compared to before George Washington. Cause suddenly everyone was as brave as George Washington. But until then, Maybe it's just a Roman thing, because Lord knows the 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 colonists uh, really loved themselves some uh, some Roman history and Roman and Greek history. Hey, too, Brute. Hey, too. Still in Little Turtle's War, after Arthur St. Clair is defeated by Little Turtle at the Battle of the Wabash, George Washington uh, ups the standing army from 1,200 soldiers to 5,000, including sending Anthony Wayne to lead in the forces. Wilkinson is then given the rank of Brigadier General, and Wilkinson then promotes Clark to an officer. He then gives him $300 to, cur- to recruit 30 men. Why does he need the 30 men? Because he's going to task, Wilkinson is going to task William Clark to deliver goods to traders who will get... Blah, blah. What is he going to do with those 30 men? Well, William is tasked to take his men and deliver goods to traders that would deal with the Chickasaws in the hopes of recruiting some of the Chickasaws to Little Turtle's War. Clark would then have to travel down the Ohio River and the Mississippi, cross Spanish and British forts, and then return two weeks later, where he did with eight Chickasaw warriors and a chief who helped them scout which seems like a tremendous amount of responsibility in incredibly dangerous territory to do so, but he does it, and he does it promptly. In fact, Anthony Wayne would write of William Clark to Secretary of War Henry Knox, and Wayne would say, quote, This young gentleman has executed his orders with promptitude in a dress that does him honor, in which, merit, which merits my highest approbation. And to show how much he meant it, he ended that sentence with an exclamation point. And I don't think ironically. <laughs> not the exclamation point. And you know, if, not that I've read a, like an absolute lot of primary sources from, I've read a fair amount, but they're, they're period heavy, they're comma heavy exclamation points is an anger or in a severe praise. So just pointing that out. That line in a dot, you know, Whew. I mean, now you just send five exclamation points. Because right. You just hold that button down. <laughs> it just... Until you get to the second line of exclamation points. Is someone really mad these days? Right. And it has to be in all caps too. Don't forget that. It's either that or they're all 60 years old, and that's just all caps, because that's that's how my mother <laughs> likes to write. How they see. <laughs> Despite a year passing since the last major hostility, Wayne uses Clark and his newly recruited scouts to explore the area around Fort Greenville. Clark would, took his scouts with 90 infantrymen, 700 horses, when they were then attacked by an Ottawa war party led by... Uh, a man named Little Otter. In only 15 minutes of fighting, 
Clark was far back enough that he doesn't see the start of the fighting, but when he does, he takes action to stop the violence, but not before 17 men are killed and 70 horses taken. Now, again, 70 horses is a lot. The 17 men is a lot, but considering they were completely ambushed and spread thin, it is a pretty good, I don't know, test for William's skills and how he can lead men into combat. And apparently he stayed calm during the whole thing. And finally, if everyone can start hearing the bell in the back of the head again, William is also present during the Battle of Fallen Timbers. He is given a command of riflemen and is placed at the left flank of the battle. He leads a column of riflemen. Clark would write of the early battle was, quote, a matter of surprise to almost every officer. When the warriors, in their surprise attack, try to outflank Clark, he wrote that the army was, quote, prepared to give them a warmer reception as to make their situation here disagreeable as those on the right. The right meaning the right flank. Clark and his men chase the warriors for about a mile when the warriors re retreat to Fort Miami, where the commander of the British fort does not let them in. Thus starting Tecumseh's storyline at the ending of the Battle of Fallen Timbers, and is also the end of Little Turtle's War, which ends officially at the Treaty of Greenville in August 1795. In 1795, Clark is given command of a company of riflemen, of about 75 in number, and for a year there isn't much to report until 1796, when Clark is asked again to run down the Mississippi River into Spanish territory. However, this time he needs to directly confront the leader of a Spanish fort, simply because the Spanish were impressing ships on the Mississippi River and not allowing the Americans to go through. The dispute is obviously the Americans believe the Spanish are on American soil. The Spanish obviously believe the opposite. The commander named Gaiasso basically said, uh, no, we're not leaving. <laughs> uh, no, it's going to, going to be a little bit more than this for you to, for you to kick us off. But, um, I'll send you a nice letter back. You seem like a nice boy. Uh, just give these back to your bosses. When Clark returns, on November 2nd, he reports to Anthony Wayne, not necessarily that the Spanish told them no, because everyone kind of knew that answer was coming, but instead Clark actually remembered most of the details of the fort, including how many men, the cannon count, how many artillery pieces, and even the flotilla that were in place of any potential new force that could be built. But because he was afraid that the Spanish would take his notes, Clark never wrote any of that down. He just memorized it and told Wayne when he got back. It was so impressive that when Timothy Pickering tells George Washington of the feat, even George Washington is impressed. And it takes an awful lot to impress George Washington. <laughs> It is around this time that Lewis is brought up on his court-martial charges, and if you remember from his episode, this is when he basically got into a political fight and was snubbed from dinner and came in and insulted the man anyway. So Lewis was brought up on court-martial charges for an ungentlemanly-like manner. He is then transferred over to Clark's unit. Again, not much is written down on their first encounter, but whatever does happen had to have been positive 
because they're only together for a brief amount of time, mainly because William is getting pretty burnt out. He doesn't really want to be in the army again. He feel like he hasn't been promoted maybe as fast as he should be. Um, and he's just looking to get out of the army life. William then puts his resignation in from the army. And on July 1st, 1796, he returns to his plantation and spends the next couple of years growing tobacco, working with his slaves and living a plantation, the life of a plantation master. Outside of the army and farming issues, Clark has to deal with some family issues when first his sister Fanny becomes a 22-year-old widow of two small boys. His sister Eliza Clark had died in January that year, likely from complications with childbirth when she was only 26. And then finally, his brother George Rogers Clark, the war hero, had made an absolute mess of the family's finances. How bad of a mess? Clark, over the next several years, would estimate that he would pay approximately $10,000 trying to settle the debt of his brother. Jeez. That is an outrageous amount of debt for 1790s America. <laughs> and by early 1803, Clark is nearly bankrupt. Despite his situation, he refuses to sell the near 20 slaves he has under his name because he thought it was the only way of keeping his plantation growing. So suddenly, I don't have as much sympathy for William Clark when he's broke. The debt aside, it also doesn't stop William from traveling quite a bit during this time. In one eight-month journey, he went down the Mississippi River and sailed through the Gulf Coast of Mexico. He came up to the Atlantic coast and traveled the stagecoach uh, and horseback across the Appalachian Mountains. He covered about 4,400 miles in this one trip. When he returns home on Christmas Day, 1798, he learns that his mother had died during that year. Six months later, John Clark, his father, he died, leaving him the principal beneficiary in his will. And by August 1799, William can now claim 3,300 acres of Kentucky land, a grist mill, 23 slaves, including, quote, one Negro named York, but also no old York and his wife, Rose, and their two children, Nancy and Juba. And in that same year that he, inher that he inherits his York, William also meets a nine-year-old girl named Julia Hancock that he calls Judith in 1800. And why do I mention this nine-year-old girl? Well, it's because she's going to be Clark's wife one day. She's nine when they first meet. He's 29 or 30 years old. Okay, 21 year difference. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> when, did, when do they marry? How old is she when they marry? Oh, she's 15. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Clark. The disgusting, the whole thing is disgusting. But to me, to know her when she is nine years old, like we're at 1800, it's not too long before he's going on the trip. He marries her pretty quick after they come back. So one of his last like memories of her at her oldest, she's 12. And he spends like no time 
wasting. Like, he like, gets back and just marries her. Very quickly, like within months of him returning, they are engaged. I'm jumping the timeline a little bit, but it's yeah, weird. it's terrible is what it is. I just we're moving on. Meanwhile, the Spanish signed over Louisiana to Napoleon after struggling to keep Americans out of the territory. The Spanish would then hope that French Louisiana would then serve as a buffer between the United States and Mexico. Foiling these plans is that Napoleon sold them less than three years later, giving it to the Americans. I'm pretty sure I was confused or like, I forgot this when we were doing uh, Lewis's episode. Do you remember when they were doing the handoff ceremony and I made fun of the Spanish being there? Yeah. This is the reason why, because it was Spanish territory it was only french for very brief the spanish gave it to napoleon to try and stop the american progression and then napoleon turned around and sold it to america yes essentially <laughs> they wanted just i a, promise i'll keep him out i'll keep him out okay here we go how need, much money yeah i need money yeah that was pretty much how it is so the spanish not too keen on napoleon move there for what you can see why in late 1802, Jefferson learned that the Spanish closed New Orleans to American shipping, supposedly under the orders of Napoleon. Jefferson was so scared that the Spanish closing Louisiana under Napoleon's orders, he was so scared that he wrote, quote, the day France takes possession of New Orleans, we must marry ourselves to the British fleet and nation. And let me tell you, for Thomas Jefferson to think, Maybe we should partner up with the British is a pretty big statement. The man be worried. Jefferson again pushes his delegation to France to purchase New Orleans. He initially sends James Monroe with $10 million to purchase the land. However, in what we've already covered, Napoleon wanting to fund his war against the British wants to keep fighting and the American settlers uh, are still coming into the area. Basically, he doesn't have time to deal with this land. So then he sells Jefferson the entire territory for $15 million. The steal of the century. It really was. And in the background, you can see the Spanish, like, just with a single tear rolling down their cheek. Wait, what? No. <laughs> They're not... This was supposed to be a buffer, and now it's just... It's just them now. In December 1802, just before Napoleon offers the entire, territory, the entire territory, Jefferson then asked the Secretary of War to ask George Rogers Clark of his opinions, and George Rogers says that they will need to ford out there, but he also writes the response, quote, I will with the greatest pleasure give my brother William every information of his power on this, or at other points in which the services of a two-year administration. He, will, he is well qualified almost for any business. If it should be in your power to confer on him in any post honor or profit in this country in which we will live, it will be exceedingly gratifying to me. So what Landon Jones writes in his book, that quote that I just pulled from there, there's always been this mystery of, well, Lewis and Clark didn't talk a whole lot before the expedition. There is a very brief amount of time before the actual expedition. So why did Lewis write it? Well, Landon Jones is suggesting he got the job because his older brother said, why don't you take my little brother? He would be very good on this. Just a nice little wrinkle. 
Anyway, back to Clark. In late 1802, William moved across the Ohio River to move across with his brother, George Rogers Clark. George Rogers planned on operating a small grist mill on what was called Silver Creek, and the two planned on expanding the business. The two built a log cabin and were living together when on July 17, 1803, a letter from Meriwether Lewis comes along addressed to William. Weird. What does it say? <laughs> what What you doing? Hey, boo. <laughs> What's up? What, W-I-D? Question mark, question mark. I don't think it's a you up question, but I don't think it's too <laughs> far off from you up. Uh, just says, hey. <laughs> Is it me you're looking for? <laughs> In the letter, Lewis says that the contents are inviolably secret until I see you. Lewis then tells William of the secret money to explore the territory, and Jefferson asks Meriwether to run it. Meriwether then writes, quote, if therefore there is any under any such circumstances in this enterprise which would induce you to participate with me in these fatigues, its danger and its honors, believe to me there is no man on earth for whom I feel equal to pleasure in sharing them with as yourself. Clark receives the letter at a time when he is near bankruptcy. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty sweet deal when you're about to go. I, I just got this letter. I got to get going. Uh, you guys right. uh, figure this out. I'll be back. And when you throw in the wrinkle that George Rogers Clark uh, maybe suggested his brother go along, starting to starting to paint a picture here on why William was selected. Clark responds with a very positive quote. The enterprise as such I have long anticipated was and am much pleased with my situation in life will admit in my absence the length of time necessary to accomplish such an undertaking. I will cheerfully join you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Do you do direct deposit? How fast can I get this money, please? <laughs> I brought you my, yeah, I brought you my routing number and bank account information. Do I need my I-9 forms? Because I have those. Trust me. Clark immediately starts recruiting men while he waits for Lewis, who is still working on the dang keelboat to be finished! God dang that keelboat. I'll get around to it when I get around to it. <laughs> was it. The guy was a drunk, if I remember correctly, right? Yes. Drunk, procrastinator, every everything Lewis hated is what he wants. <laughs> everything Lewis hated. <laughs> As soon as the keelboat is done, as we discussed, Lewis took off literally that morning. And then they meet Clark on August 15th, 1803, near Clarksburg, Virginia. And it is the first time the men have met since their military days. The two men don't waste much time reminiscing on the shore as they are quickly moving down the river again, where I'm assuming this is where they talk about, well, how are we actually going to do this thing? It's one thing to write pleasant letters, but... Seriously, who's going to be in charge of what? Now, they're going to be equal captains, but they kind of divert into. Lewis would basically take on like the scientific discovery aspect, the medical, that type of stuff, where Clark was more the day to day operations guy. He would be the one handing out punishment. He would be the one just making sure everything ran together. Um, Bad cop. Yeah, basically good cop, bad cop. But again, each of them did 
both things, but like on a typical day, you would see William, you'd see Clark taking over like the day to day and Lewis writing down all of the, uh, the scientific discoveries, things like that. But Clark also was like dead reckoning and stuff, right? He was keeping track of the, he was the map maker. Yes. That was his, his main thing. Yes. Uh, we'll get into that in just a second, actually. When they start moving up the Mississippi River, they start realizing they're going to need more men. They knew the Mississippi River was powerful, but in one day of eight hours of constant rowing, they only made about 10 miles. Considering they would be traveling up against the current until the continental divide, they weren't quite sure if that pace was going to be uh, sustainable. Sustainable, or they were going to need more men because... If this is the pace, which, by the way, it was the pace, they're going to need a lot more guys to go through. It's going to take a lot more than two dozen. And if you remember the final count, it was over 40 when they leave St. Louis. But finally, after much recruiting and after many pleasant letters, they finally leave St. Louis in May 1804 and they begin their journey to the Pacific Ocean. And if you want more detail on that, you know where to go. A couple of things I do want to point out is that Clark was more of the even keel of the two captains. He was the more experienced traveler and frontiersman. Uh, I don't think it's quite accurate to say that Lewis was the brain and Clark was the brawn, but they complemented each other's leadership work as a team. Uh, That worked incredibly well over the next two and a half years. The relationship that... The other thing I want to talk about is York. Because honestly, I wanted to figure out how to do an episode on York, and there's just not that much written about him that we wouldn't be talking about Clark at either way. So to talk about York, York is, I, it's difficult to kind of explain what he was. Every tribe that he encountered, they were fascinated with him. Most of the tribes had never seen a white person, let alone a black person. So. The tribe sees a black man. They couldn't tell if he was a man, a beast, or some type of spirit. And York kind of goes along with it. When children would come up, they would bellow out that he was a wild beast. York would say, yes, he was, and that he was tamed by Captain Clark. Which (laughs) (laughs) He would then chase around, run around and chase and play with the kids. When they were visiting the Arikaras, York was invited into a lodge by a warrior who offered his wife for, we'll just say, playing a board game. And during the action of playing a board game, the warrior stood just outside the flap of the teepee and just just listened, which sounds incredibly awkward to me, but. What in, dude? They had some crazy practices. I mean, hey, people still do it today, but come on. When York left the Arikaras, he left with the coolest nickname. What was it? The Big Medicine. <laughs> oh yeah, my my wife got the Big Medicine <laughs> three or four times, and you can just picture him. Yeah, she did. You just did the finger guns. (laughs) If somebody called me the big medicine, I would put that on as a name tag. And that's how people would address me. I'm making shirts. I'm making shirts. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it. 
That's all we're going to talk about. The actual discovery. That's it. We're, we're done talking about the core of discovery. Now we're literally going to jump to when they return on September 22nd, 1806, where when this episode drops, it will be September 20th on September 22nd. That's the anniversary we're celebrating. So we did it. It's why Yay. we're doing it. Yay, it happened. We just skipped three years. <laughs> Essentially, we just get basically the most famous thing he'd ever done. But uh, that's it. They return on September 22nd, 1806, where they are greeted by a thousand St. Louis citizens. One of Clark's most immediately do one of his first immediate duties that he needs to do right now is all of those maps that he just created. Uh, he needs to make them basically one map. <sighs> it's not quite like a, making like a cocktail napkin and like piecing that together, but kind of picture that going on. I have this puzzle that I need to connect and that's what he works on. In total, Clark had made 50 route maps two large maps which had been constructed at the winters at Fort Mandan and then at Fort Clatsop and then on large sheets of paper and then with dozens of other smaller maps he combines them into one four foot long map it is the same map that Clark and Lewis both like get on their hands and knees to look over oh and they're looking over at it um that map him and Jefferson, right? Yes. In, at the White House or at their the residence or whatever. Yeah. At the, is at the, the White House? House. It's yeah. the White House, yeah. Can you imagine the white the writer's cramp? <laughs> like I think his hand was just a big round ball of muscle at the end of it. He's just sitting there just moving his wrist. <laughs> Carpal tunnel. I can't even type for two hours without hurting, let alone like trying this map. Upon his return, Clark is rewarded with his lieutenant's commission. Woo! Yay! That's exactly what I wanted. Yeah, this is the best thing. This is definitely what I was promised. Or at least that's what was put on the U.S. inventory because uh, Congress rejected the nomination officially because they didn't feel Clark could be promoted over more senior officers. So I would be so dang mad. Yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't that put a damper on your return? I'd be, I would be so mad. Well, especially because you were like, I mean, if I remember correctly from Lewis's episode, they're like, we'll sort it out. We'll sort it out. Essentially, yeah, they kicked that can down the road, and then suddenly that can couldn't be kicked any farther. Well, I mean, at the same time, too, it's like <laughs> we're already on the trip, so it's not like right. Uh, it's not like we can st- wait. Hold on, we got to go back to Washington. Clark kind of had the same attitude you had, where you just had to like take a breath because he's so angry about it. He only like there's only like one story of him talking about it, and it's even like barely mentioned. Uh, we're going to introduce us to Nicholas Biddle in just a second, but he only mentions it once and says something to the tune of they did me wrong. And that's all he said. Hashtag military life. Yeah, I don't know that. If I had a dollar, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard someone say they did me wrong, <laughs> I'd have I'd be 
very wealthy. <laughs> Fistful of dollars. Clark returned in December 1806 and made a direct line to Julia Hancock. God damn it. We got to talk about this again. Whom he had actually named a river out west, the Judith River, because he called Julia. He called the teen. He called the girl Judith. Um, so he named a river after her. He did. So he was already in love with her and at her ripe age of 12 years old. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, House of Dragons where the king wants to, or they're trying to get the king to marry. Uh, I think she's a 12 year old. Oh, great. Great. This is so relatable. This is, <laughs> I haven't seen House of Dragon. Even the, even the little like the king's like, what did your mom tell you? And she was like, that you don't have to bed me till I'm of age. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> this is too weird for me. <laughs> I mean, that was that was a thing in medieval time. Like you would have obviously very young brides. And yes, the understanding was when they were ma- mature or like, yeah, adults, then yes, they would. Uh, they would do that. But yeah, it's good to see that the medieval medieval times went on into the 1800s. <laughs> you know, six. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Julie is at least 15 years old, which for this time period, I guess is acceptable, but it's still still is it for the I mean, yeah, because like you got to look at the responsibilities they they had on their teenagers like. Again, I don't want it's the whole thing's gross, but if we're putting this in context, 15 is not not terrible. So, yeah, and I guess we, we really didn't cover it, but Julia and William are engaged in March 1807. So only three months after he returns uh, from the home, Clark would then this is where he gets his big promotion. So maybe this kind of helped the pill a little bit, swallowing the pill. Lewis is then appointed the territorial governor of Louisiana and Clark is named brigadier general of the territorial militia and principal U.S. agent. Now, it's militia. It's not the standing army, so it's kind of like the, I don't know, not gray area, but it's not what he wanted, but it's a it's a high rank, just not what he wants. He'll take the paycheck, though, because he's going to make about $1,500 a year. A year! A year! <laughs> a year. <laughs> that's so funny. That's what a, a, a apartment costs these days. I was about to say, that's a month's rent for a lot of people. And not even for a nice apartment anymore. I live on the East Coast. It's it's a spendy time, a spendy place over here. Woo! He would then also gain 1,600 acres of land in Louisiana. He reports for his new assignment in April 1807, just in time for the fighting between the Shawnee and William Henry Harrison to really start heating up. <laughs> Congratulations, a larger historical context is about to happen. You do kind of feel like, obviously, like the core discovery, big moment. We've already kind of touched on this, but like the first half of his life is like a big chunk of U.S. history that doesn't get covered nearly as much as it should. And now we're about to go into the second that is just as important. And it just seems like the core discovery is that middle line. Where it's just like, yeah, he went on it, but then he also did this. Like we're entering the second half of stuff that he was he was really involved in. Clark was a man of his time and was also a good soldier. A lot of his duties was to order supplies for the factory system. Matt, do you remember what the factory system was? No. Okay. 
It was the system. Do you remember William Henry Harrison's negotiation tactics? Like, we're going to get natives hooked on the United States. They're going to be dependent on the United States. A lot of it had to do with giving them alcohol, but it also had things to do with we're going to get the like we'll trade ammunition with them so that they have to be dependent on our stuff so that they have to come to us for help. Clark is is the guy that organizes the inventory and sends it out. Clark then believed in advocating that there would be multiple forts on the river, like on the Mississippi rivers to help both help that trading, but also help intimidate tribes to guarantee control of the area. He Clark negotiated with tribes with positive and negative results in one dealing with the Osages in a deal that was lar- that was the largest treaty since the Treaty of Fort Greenville back in 1795. The deal totaled 82,000 square miles. And to help people figure out how big that is, that is basically most of modern day Missouri and half of Arkansas. It's a lot of land, a lot of land. Guess what Clark negotiated the selling price to be? Let me guess. 225,000. Uh, you're going to have to do some math on this one if that's that's your price, but how many how many per acre? How many what's your price per acre? $2.74, $2.75. The natives would get about one-sixth of a cent per acre. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> about 15% of a penny. Oh, oh. a little, little bit off. A little bit off. Mm. How much did you say? A, a fifth of a penny? 15% of a penny, basically. One-five. Rough math there. Nobody correct me. It was very rough math. One sixth of a penny is the actual conversion. Mm. Mm. Damn. Mm. Mm. It's about yeah. right. Now the Osages leave the deal appearing to be happy, but three days later, Clark's here that there's a little bit of a commotion going on with the Osages. Apparently the Osages were not on the mindset that they were selling the land completely but they basically were paid to let the Americans use their hunting land. Now, maybe I'm giving Clark the benefit of the doubt, but it doesn't seem like there was any deception on his part. It was likely a translating issue that they said this because like they agreed on a price. You could see with that context, why the Osage would agree to such a small price. Because granted, if they were going to sell the land outright, they likely would have just walked away. But it doesn't seem like Clark was trying to screw them outright. He just got the best deal he could. And it was probably like incredibly excited to get to sell it for that much. But I could also be rose colored glasses, too. So who knows? Maybe I'm giving him too much of the benefit of the doubt. It's real gray area. I, I would agree with almost anyone who wants to argue with that or debate me on that. So. So now we got to talk about York again. In an effort to talk about this all at once, I'm going to be jumping the timeline a little bit, but long story short, York wants his freedom, which you think he would be entitled to because he just went on an incredibly dangerous journey where he was essentially treated as an equal. Remember the vote they had on the Pacific Northwest. He was given a vote. Everyone. 
Yep. Everyone was equal during this trip. Well, when he returns home, being a slave doesn't seem like the best thing for him to I mean, he just had basically, what, two years and some change of freedom, basically. Yeah. I mean, freedom, but like he was not freedom, but like he was an equal. Right. Everyone was pulling their weight that he would pull. In 1809, Clark gives York permission to go see his wife on another plantation. Now, that in itself is as far as slavery goes, is not uncommon to have husband and wife on different plantations for them to go see each other once in a while. But when York wants to stay longer and York wants to hire himself out, Clark refuses and says, quote, uh, saying of York, Clark writes, quote, he is serviceable to me at this place and I am determined not to sell him or to gratify him. If any attempt is made to by York to run off, I wish to send him off to New Orleans and sold or hired out to some severe master. What the heck? Why? Because York kept asking about his freedom. Wow. So Clark said, not a good guy. With all due respect, like, again, I just said I'm more drawn to William Clark. And I apologize for the language. But in this particular case, William Clark, you can go feed yourself. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Clark is so frustrated by York and his persistent wanting of freedom that it takes Meriwether Lewis to prevent Clark from actually selling York farther away from his wife. Clark would eventually give York lashings because of his, quote, misdeeds. John O'Fallon wrote Clark from Louisville and inquired about York, who was now living there and was hired out to help some various masters. So quite a bit of time has actually passed between... Uh, probably about 10 years has passed since then. Maybe I should have put more context than that. York's conduct under O'Fallon had been excellent, and O'Fallon reported that when he first arrived, that York had been poorly clothed and, quote, appeared wretched under the fear that he might incur your displeasure and which he despairs you will ever remove. I am confident that he sorely repents for whatever misconduct of his might have been led to the breach of men or moreover has been considered amended and in fine deem it be unreasonable to recommend his situation to your consideration. No reply from Clark has been found. Not saying it didn't happen, but essentially what happened is York was incredibly scared of what Clark was going to do. O'Fallon told Clark about it, and as far as we know, Clark never responded to it. Only near the end of Clark's life would he grant York his freedom when he would give York, quote, large wagon of team of six horses and ply between Nashville and Richmond. But in presenting himself as a liberator of the slaves, Clark cannot help but justify the slavery, saying that all three of the slaves he freed, he then reported, had then seen the error of their decision. They all, quote, repented and wanted to come back. Wait, wait, wait. So he said he freed slaves and they were like, no, we don't want to be free. Yeah, which is pretty common for slave owners to do. That was part of their reasoning why they they were doing black people a favor because they had never been able to watch themselves. They they clearly can't handle themselves on their own. It's just what they told themselves. Dang, that's crazy. And he's talking about this for three slaves. I mean, all it is, he's just just trying to make himself feel better. 
Right. There's no no other way around it. Of the three slaves, so again, the, when Clark freed the three slaves, one of them was York. And during that same letter, Clark cannot help, according to Landon Jones, help conceal his contempt for York. As he said, quote, he cannot get up early enough. His horses are ill-kept, ill-fared. And according to Clark, York had finally said, quote, damn this freedom. I will never have, I have never had a happy day since I got it. He then decided to return, quote, to his old master, but he had then died in Tennessee. So Clark, York died before he could return to Clark, essentially. Dang. Yeah. What a tragic ending. Yeah. Yes, it was. And I bet Clark didn't even care. Yeah, there's no... There's no defending this. There isn't. I mean, it just how deluded can you be? I don't understand. Like even following down that his thought process of, well, they, I gave them their freedom and now they all want to come back. Well, how about the two and a half years where York was essentially free and he didn't have any, like he didn't have those issues. So I, I don't know. It's disgusting. Anyway, again, there's no transition to this, but we got to focus back on Meriwether Lewis. And at this time, the world is really starting to close in on Lewis and Clark is really starting to become worried. And one of their final meetings that Clark would have with Lewis, he tells his friend on August 25th that his friend expressed, quote, in such terms to cause a crime and theory, which if not yet off. He continued, I do not believe there is an ever a more honest man in Louisiana, nor one more pure motive than Governor Lewis. For the next couple of weeks, Lewis had been seen deranged, talking to himself as he's gearing up to prepare to go to Washington to defend uh, the issues that he was having there. Clark would report that he had heard that Lewis was talking to Clark as if he expected Clark to show up and to be there. Now, if you remember from Lewis's episode, I believe I said, I think I was mistaken. I believe I said that Lewis and Clark were both going to Washington. And I think I misspoke there because it was Lewis believing Clark was going to be coming to Washington. Um, I think I just outright got that wrong rather than I misspoke. So I apologize for that. But uh, Clark was never going to Washington. He had just heard that Lewis kind of expected them to be there kind of in the delirium. William spends October 1809 visiting his brother Jonathan when he is in Shelbyville when he picks up a newspaper and reads of Lewis's death. Clark would write to his brother Jonathan, quote, I fear, oh, I fear the weight of his mind has overcome him. What will ever become of his papers? Clark wrote to a magistrate friend to make sure that he, Clark received Lewis's traveling trunks, which contained the only set of their journals that existed. He then asked Jonathan to forward the disturbing last letter that he had received from Lewis in Louisville since, quote, it was to be the greatest service to me. However, the letter had never been located. But Williams acknowledged to Jonathan that there was a quandary about how often to proceed further. I do not know what I shall do about the publication of the book which requires funds, which I do not have at present. So immediately, Clark doesn't know how he's going to publish the journals. He assumed that Lewis was already doing that, but reality, as we talked... Lewis didn't even start, really. He didn't. 
the question again then comes to who's going to write the journals. Clark Wright rides down to have dinner with Thomas Jefferson. And the initial idea is to have Thomas Jefferson write the journals. Now, this is 1809-1810 Thomas Jefferson post-presidency. He doesn't have a lot of interest in taking up this big of a project. He's 65 years old. He would prefer just to be the gentleman farmer again. So he turns it down. So they turn to a young prodigy named Nicholas Biddle. Those familiar with Andrew Jackson's story will remember Nicholas Biddle as it is the same guy who gets run over by the cult of personality that becomes Andrew Jackson in the 1830s. But that's 25 years into the future, and we don't need to cover that now. Biddle is then asked to write them, where he spends the next six weeks, six months working on the journal and even lives with Clark for a couple of weeks. And in one of the early drafts of Nicholas's of Biddle's notes, you can even see a list of questions that he asked Clark, including, are there any oysters on the Pacific coast? What exactly did you say to the Sioux chief to quote, touch his pride? Do you remember what they're referencing there is, do you remember when the Sioux held the canoe line and wouldn't let the core discovery move on? Clark was the one right next to him that angered him um, to, to grab the line. One of the questions was, how do Indian mothers flatten their heads for their babies? I don't remember if I covered this or not, but did we ever talk about the Flathead tribe? We did not. So there is a tribe. Matt, you're going to have to do a Google. They are literally called the Flatheads because as a sign of beauty, they would take their child, an infant's child, and they would place a board up against their forehead. And as a sign of beauty, they would flatten their head. And it gets pretty severe as Matt is looking this up. And then when you find it, just, just go ahead and describe what you see. Oh, dang. Okay. Yeah, it's like their head's flat. Yeah, like literally flat. There's even, I think if that'll... Like a... Their forehead is sloped at like yeah, an incredible angle. Yes. I'm pretty sure if, I think if you go to their Wikipedia page, I'm pretty sure they show like the device that did it. But yeah, it was basically just a board with a string that they would put on the child's head. And just flatten it there for hours. And this was a sign of beauty. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, just a nice little tidbit. Again, I know we just went over five hours of Lewis and Clark, like the actual journey, but there's there's a lot more there if anyone ever wants to go and look at it. Biddle gets the journals organized, but just as they're about to get published, they gets pushed back because of the opening of the War of 1812. And when they finally do get released over a year later, it had been over seven years since the expedition had returned. What also didn't help is that Patrick Gass published his accounts in a trip of a trip a few years earlier. So any anticipations for the journal was kind of diminished. Right. Like they didn't. I mean, it already people already heard the story, right? Right. Which you could think that could work both ways. Like you could think of Patrick Gass's epi- uh, journals as like the appetizers, but like let's get the meat, meat and the potatoes with, uh, with Lewis and Clark's journals. But to show you how bad sales fell off, they only printed fifteen hundred copies. It was the only copy 
that would be in distribution for the next 90 years. Biddle's version. Now, they would do a couple reprints. The 1500 was the original printed, but nobody redid the journals for 90 years. Most of the expedition's discoveries were renamed or rediscovered by others that went through the area in the near century after the trip. And finally, men like John Quincy Adams, among others, weren't too keen on the trip either. Basically saying, what is the point of knowing what's in the Pacific Northwest? Like, what benefit does this give the United States? Which is surprising from someone like John Quincy Adams, who is very forward thinking, but it makes you kind of think that his father was John Adams, obviously. Jefferson and John Adams are definitely in the enemy mode of their feud. So I feel like that kind of leads into it. But yeah, it's not like everyone agrees that this is this big, great accomplishment that has been achieved. Anyway, back to Clark again. The journals aside, Clark's professional life is getting better. In 1813, he is promoted to Missouri Territorial Governor and even leads troops in the War of 1812. After the Treaty of Ghent is signed to end the War of 1812, British is never a real threat again to invade the U.S. With a fair amount of the tribes signing a peace agreement, things are relatively calm in the Mississippi River area and the Missouri River area. According to Landon Jones, over the next six years, from 1814, the population of the Missouri Territory grew from about 25,000 to 65,000, so over double in just under six years. Many of those moving into the area were Kentucky and Virginia slave owners. One of Clark's duties was to go in and deal with Native tribes as the growing American population kept encroaching on the area. Clark had gained a reputation when dealing with the tribes fairly. He would allow them their land rights, but would make it very clear that the United States was in control. He would take cases objectively and not just sign with American settler, side with American settlers who were encroaching on American land. Clark would enforce and threaten any immigrants who went on to native land that they would be prosecuted under law and not just by the tribes. So kind of refreshing. We've talked about a lot of disgusting things with Clark, but at least he is leveling and recognizing that they have the right to be there. Clark initially has the backing of, of President Madison, who, quote, premature occupancy of these lands can be viewed as an invasion of the sovereign rights of the United States and called the immigrants, quote, lawless adventurers. But instead, he backs off and actually signs a law saying that settlers could remain on the public land until they were put up for sale. So Madison first initially agrees and then he takes it back. After Madison takes a few steps back of his initial position, Clark then heads out to meet uh, other tribes. However, the tribes are, we'll just say, less than motivated to cooperate with any peace negotiations after the fallout of the War of 1812, since they never officially signed the Treaty of Ghent, which ended the War of 1812, nor were they ever defeated by Americans in battle. One of these leaders was from the Sauk tribe, named Black Hawk, and Black Hawk is furious that Madison is no longer going to be kicking out, or the United States is no longer going to be kicking out the squatters that are on their land. He sends out a war party before Clark can talk to them, 
And in a matter of weeks, the sock party ambushed a family and got into an armed conflict that the Americans of that the Americans would call the Battle of the Sinkhole in 1815. Clark gets blamed by many of the newspapers, saying that his leniency towards natives allowed the massacre to happen. With urgency, Clark invites 43 chiefs, including Black Buffalo, again, the Sioux chief who held the Corps of Discoveries hostage for a few days, to talk about the area, uh, into a peace conference, and talks start in July 1815. The Sox, however, are one of the tribes that don't show up, likely believing it's a trap. Clark opened up the negotiations, addressing each tribe individually and not as a large group. But when he gets time to talk to the Sox, again, the tribe that is attacking the settlers, he tells them that the Americans are willing to forgive any past wrongdoing, but only if Black Hawk would attend within the next 30 days. And if he didn't attend, there would be war. When the enemies of the tribe applauded at the thought that the Americans would go to war with the Sauk tribe, the Sauk and the Foxes take the message immediately and leave her the next day. This kind of shows you that Clark kind of thought of himself as a stern father when he was dealing with the tribes, even if they weren't going to cooperate. He was one of the few that treats the tribes of individual bands, and in fact, he negotiates separately with each tribe. And on July 20th, eight tribes signed the deal. While there are a few hiccups, a lot of the tribes end up signing, and by December 15th, 1815, the Senate ratifies the peace treaties. So Clark does kind of stop a Plains War from going on, or at least delaying it. Uh, Black Hawk will be getting his own episode, so this is kind of chapter one in his life, uh, or at least like his, onto his national stage. There's definitely more for him, but um, he's going to lay dormant for a while he's on the national stage. When President Monroe comes in, he meet Clark meets with Monroe and John C. Calhoun, who is the Secretary of War. Clark argued that the government's Indian policy needed to be overhauled and to give Indian agents legal power to detect unlicensed trade and to evict squatters and to stop smuggling any alcohol into Indian territory. So again, Clark is actually sticking up for tribes, saying we need real power as agents to kick squatters out of the land if you want peace in this territory. One of the more important things that he felt is that the factory system wouldn't work on the more distant tribes. Clark argued for a powerful commercial company that was protected by the United States that would, quote, sweep the whole of the valuables of the fur trades up the Missouri and the Mississippi and to expel all the petty British trailers, traders and bring them into our markets an immense quantity of furs. Now, this idea is shared by a couple people, obviously by Clark, but Lewis also wanted to do the same thing, if you remember vaguely. But also, someone that we might cover later, uh, named John Jacob Astor, is also thinking he could have some type of fur empire on the on the east coast so he's not even thinking or the west coast he's not even thinking of the missouri river but he's in the not too distant future actually at this time it's already passed he sets up a place called astoria where he's going to be setting up basically a fur empire um or again we'll be talking about that in the later date but there's a lot going on in this area personally for clark he constantly worries about julia who at this point is only 28 years old. However, after giving birth to five children, her health 
is starting to fail rapidly as well, likely due to a cancer. On a trip to a mineral spring that Clark hopes will bring her a, a little bit more life, Julia collapses, and Clark wrote, quote, for three weeks, I expected every day she would die. But she does recover enough, at least for Clark, to leave her a bit in March of 1820. He leaves because that's the same year that Missouri becomes an official state, and Clark is running for the first governorship of Missouri. However, he's definitely an underdog. Clark is viewed as too lenient by the tribes, according to the papers, and when, but he runs for the governorship anyway. However, his campaign is halted when, during a debate, he hears that Julia had died. She had taken a sudden turn. Oh, no. And he was gone. He didn't even get to see her die. No. When William gets home a few days later, he finds out that his father-in-law had also died that same day Julia had. Jeez. After burying his wife and his father-in-law, Clark then loses the governorship in a huge way. In fact, he doesn't win a single county in the state. He was that big of an underdog. Huh? <laughs> Wasn't going to happen is what it was going to be. So Clark is now 50 years old and is the widower of five children. Plus, we haven't talked about this much, but John Baptiste, Sacagawea's and Sarbino's son, he is now starting to live with them uh, and to take an education, if you remember that deal from Sacagawea's yeah. episode. Yeah. Jean-Baptiste will eventually just get his own education and kind of just go on with his life to live uh, much farther into the future, uh, kind of outside the scope of what we're talking about. But as far as Clark's concern, only a year and a half after Julia's death, uh, he remarries a woman named Harriet. However, she only lives a couple more years before she dies on Christmas Eve. <laughs> There's a lot of tragedy in, in Clark's uh, later life. Despite losing the governorship, Clark stays on as superintendent of Indian affairs, and his sole job is just to keep the Plains Indians peaceful. His responsibilities including making passports for all traders in the United States and negotiating treaties to establish travel boundaries with the tribes. He attempts to make personal relationships with almost anyone that comes through the area, and in one week, his department saw over 220 Native families. When Andrew Jackson is elected president, and as we head into the 1830s, one of Clark's unfortunate responsibilities is he has to help enforce the new Indian Removal Act, which ha which was passed uh, basically to kick the Cherokees off of their land. Clark was one of the movers or were the ones responsible to get them past the Mississippi River. Now, I don't believe he ever wrote on his personal feelings on it. In fact, I don't believe he agreed with it at all, but you're talking about essentially a lifetime soldier. So he just followed his commands, whether he disagreed with it or not. Orders were given. He follows those orders. Yep. Clark continues to work through the 1830s, but never officially retires working up until basically his last days when he finally dies on September 1st, 1838. What did he die of? Just, Old age. <laughs> He's 68 okay. years old. It's, uh, he lived a life. <laughs> he lived a full, very full life. On to the rankings. 
First round, are you satisfied? This is our biography round where we can talk handing out points between negative 10 points and positive 10 points apiece, depending on how much we liked his story. Matt? So it's a mixed bag. Obviously, the core of discovery part that we didn't talk about. Do we have to take that in consideration or are we just? I think the best thing we can do. So we start Well, we gave it a 10 for Lewis, right? Mm-hmm. I think we start off at 10 and then we take points away. Okay. So he did a lot after the core of discovery, I think. Yes, he did. Um, but he was also kind of a douche. Yeah. He was a douche nugget. Yes, he was. <laughs> Before and well, after. Right, right, right. Before and after. I mean, God dang. I can't believe, like, I can't remember his name, so I'm going to call him Big Menace. York. York. Oh, I remembered it. I can't believe they were, like, childhood friends, but then, like, it's one of those things where then, like, no, I'm your owner now. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like how that whole thing played out. Overall, uh, I'm going to do. Uh, I was thinking about this during. I'm going to do seven and a half. What are you thinking? There's two real disgusting parts of his life. <laughs> and they're pretty bad. They're pretty bad. I mean, they were one was so bad. It got you to, to say the F bomb. It did. It and like the thing with slavery, it's not like we. I mean, we always take off a few, po- uh, at least a point or two for the figures that have gotten right. But also keep in insane. mind for Lewis, we did full ten, and I think I think the re- oh, like, yeah, he was right. so good that like the story was so good that you forget he's a slave owner. Well, that rears its ugly head with William Clark in a big way. And it's well, not I mean, like Lewis even talked him out of selling York. York because he had the audacity to want to be free. God forbid. Right. So that and like the the whole Judith thing really bothers me <laughs> as it should bother everyone to know someone at nine years old and then to think of her when you're out West to name like a like, cause you clearly want to marry, like you're smitten with this 12 year old and you're, and you're 29. Oh, he's, uh, that was when they first met when they, when he's in the, oh, yeah, so he's well into his thirties. Yes. So it, that's not great. Now I think that's more for the next round, but I'm still going to punish him in this round too. So I'm going to go seven. Um, most of, cause like, Outside of the two disgusting parts, he had the core discovery, which we both love. We we full ten. He was a really brave fighter. He was at fallen timbers. He was at he was everywhere before and after. Now there's even parts of his story like he meets with Tenskwatawa. Now it's not more than a paragraph for him to meet, but to really talk about. But Tenskwatawa comes and talks to William Clark. There's going to be another story in the not too distant future with the Nez Purse that they're going to come visit him. And Clark is also part of that. Like the man was just involved with everything during this time when it came to the West. To where I can't think of someone who had more of a hand in the early, like the early 1800s that had to do with the West. I mean, he was just there. 
And I think that's what I'm giving him some points back because, I mean, the other parts where I'm really going to the next round, I think, is where he's going to really struggle. But I'm going to stick with my seven. You gave him a seven and a half. That gives him a total score of 14.5. Next round. Be sure you are right. Then go ahead. This is our morality round. We're going to be handing out negative 10 points apiece to positive 10 points apiece, depending on how good he was. How much do we want to punish him for those two really <laughs> disgusting things? <laughs> I'm going to say six. Positive six? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to. I mean, he wasn't oh, like a bad. Right. He might have been, <laughs> yep. been a bad guy, but he wasn't like a bad guy, if that makes sense. He was a man of his time. Morally. Yes, he was a man of his time. Morally, not morally bad but he wasn't like a villain right i do hate that phrase man at this time because it does seem like we're giving them an excuse but he was there was nothing we more say that like a lot too because unfortunately a lot of these figures are of the time right. i don't know that's so creepy though i don't know i don't know it is very creepy <laughs> anyways anyways what do you what do you what do you give it i mean I don't want to sway your vote because you've already given your number. You gave, I gave Sacagawea a two and you gave her a three because we didn't have evidence to go on. I can't see me uh, giving more than a positive score than Sacagawea. Oh man. And I already said six, huh? So I'm going one. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it. All right. That's fair. Uh, He's going to give a seven. Second Julia was five. So I'm, I'm going one. Cause I, I just can't get over those two things. Mm-hmm. It's been on my brain for too long. So, and keep in mind, like I said before, I am more drawn towards Clark than I am Lewis. Like if I was going to hang out with one of the captains, it would be Clark. Would you ask him all these questions? Yeah. I don't think he'd answer them though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Total score is seven. Next round to hell with the consequences. This is our crazy or clever round. We're going to be handing out points between negative 10 if we think he was more crazy or positive 10 if we think he was more clever. I think I'm going to go zero. I don't think he was neither. Do we have we, we've probably talked about this is crazy is clever and smart the same thing? I would say uh, we have talked about it. I can't remember what we said, but for me, I think clever as like you are, you can like worm your way out of things. You come up with things, you create things. So he was more of the frontiersman than Lewis. Right. So if we gave, what did we get? We gave Lewis, you gave him five and a half. I gave him eight. I can't remember why I gave him either. So 13 and a half is the standard. Do we think he was more clever than Lewis? No. Lewis invented those boats. He like did a lot of stuff in preparation. You know, we did forget that Clark almost killed Sacagawea by basically bleeding her to death. I was going to say that, uh, but I thought it would be a bad joke when you were talking about his wife. Like, I'm surprised he didn't try and bleed her out, but um, I don't think you're wrong. She was at the mineral spring. So at least there would have been able to get mineral back. To you me. know what? I guess if we're going that route, I would say three. Definitely not more than Lewis. I think I'm going to go slightly higher. Maybe not even. I'm going to go four and a half. I don't have good reasons why other than I can't get in the back of my head. If if Lewis was smart or if Lewis was clever, I gave him an eight. So I'm even going significantly lower than that. 
and I think Clark is the more able frontiersman. Why am I giving a four and a half? But I, I can't answer that. I think I just am because I don't I don't think he's more impressive than Lewis. And I think Lewis is more of like. I don't know, Sherlock Holmes clever. Maybe not. Maybe that's not how I want to phrase that, but. I think that's more apt for Lewis and Clark is just the. Uh, the guy that got things done. Right. Four point five total score seven and a half. Next round. Oh, sorry. We're going to lock his score in because he is at positive 29 points. If he had been at negative 29 points, we would continue to subtract scores from his from his score. But because he's positive, we're going to continue to add. Next round is draw. If Matt and I got into a duel with William Clark, how screwed are we? I don't think we'd be that screwed. Maybe like a two. I mean, he would shoot the, would he shoot underneath our feet to make us bark? <laughs> I don't think, I mean, we'll get there next round, I think, but I don't think he, well, did he kill people? I guess he was in some battles. He is, yeah, we got to discuss that too. So, um, didn't really. I don't know. I mean, I think he, I don't know. I think I'm better at a pit, using a pistol than he is. I think I'd win. Do you? Yep. Wow. Calling Clark wow. out right now. That's a bold statement. Meet me at the spot, Clark. You know where I'm at. Oh, dear. What was your score? Two. I missed that. <laughs> and you two. Yikes. I'm a little bit more. I'm a little bit more intimidated. Um, I think he had good accuracy. I think he was more even keel. So whatever we did to make him angry, we'd have to be keep doing it quite a bit for him to get to the point of a duel. Um, I did miss. I didn't. I did cut the story. He was a second in a duel near like 1810 or something like that. There's not much to the story other than he was a second, but he had been in a duel or at least around a duel field before. If that influences you. Nope. He was a second. That means he sucked. Couldn't even do the duel Me himself. Too. Please. Please. <laughs> Where is this bravado coming from? Who is this? Who is this? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Well, that's going to, I'm going to go a five. If I didn't say that, that brings him to a total score of seven. Legacy. How well known is William Clark? We're going to be handing out points from zero to 10. We gave Lewis 10. 10. Their name, I yeah, mean, their it has names to be are like what is it? Syn synchronous, 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 synonymous. Thank you, Jesus. There you go. Yeah, I don't know how that can be any different. It has, it has to match Lewis because if it matched Lewis, it has to match Clark. You could make the argument like I can, I can tell you, based off of research, like like historians writing, Lewis gets far more time than Clark. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, do you think I was going to ask you, do you think Clark was always mad that it's Lewis and Clark, not Clark and Lewis? Uh, I don't know if that comprehended with him, but I just know like, cause most of their legacy, like Clark's legacy really wasn't the core of discovery during his lifetime. Now, since then, like 1900 on when people started like, Oh, this is actually kind of cool. Or this was important. That's when their legacy really started taking off. But as far like, even if you just type into Google Meriwether Lewis, you're going to find multiple volumes on him. And for William Clark, there's like two books. 
One is very short. The other I had to like dig. It is this one. It was written by that Landon Jones. There's a reason I quoted him like five times in the episode, because this is really the only like heft, like main source. Like that's, there's not much written on Clark and it's mainly because to me, he doesn't have the tragic story arc that Lewis does. So yeah, I mean, I, I could go with, if you want, if one of them is more famous than the other, I could see myself doing a 9.5, but I'm not going to, I think that's being too cute by half. So I'm not, I'm just going to keep it at it. Total score of 20 next round death bonus. Does he have a cool story of how he died? Handing out bonus points between zero and two. Nope. (laughs) No, no. I mean, he did it. He died of old age. Congratulations. Not much stock there. Next round, counting coup are his confirmed-ish kills, and we're dividing that number by 10. Do we give him the token 10, the one point, because he led people into battle? Yeah, I think so. Because he was in multiple, right? Yeah. Fallen to I mean, there's a lot that you can list off. Fallen Timbers is the most famous, but, I mean, he there was a lot. Sure was. So... One point for counting two coup, which gives him a total score of 57. Mm, not bad. Not bad for a piece of crap. I don't like him. I don't like him. Yeah, there's sour taste in your mouth. Uh, just for context, Bass Reeves got a 62. He beats Annie Oakley by five. <laughs> she got a 52. Anyone else with a 67? Uh, Tom Horn is negative 48.7, so it's kind of the opposite, but 57 total points. Not not terrible. Now we got to draft him. Now we got to draft him. And there's no coin flip because I'm up by, oh no, I'm only up by one. So while Eric grabs his coin, remember, we'll flip for it. I'll call it. Whoever wins gets first dibs on if they get to draft him in their team each of our teams consist of 20 figures. The rest go into a reserve pool that we can pick up or drop any of our current figures into at any time. At the end, we'll have the big face off Eric's team versus mine. Are you ready, Eric? I'm ready. Heads. Reflip. 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 Still heads. Eric, it is. So move it up a bit. Move it up. Tails. So me? Yep. I think I'm at the point where I need strategy. I'm trying to figure out how to. <sighs> I'm going to pass. I am also going to pick him up. I'm just kidding. I'm going to pick him up. <laughs> Man, you could have had the whole core discovery. So here's my worry. Here's why I passed. Because I do. I, and I've done a terrible job telling everyone that I like Lewis or William Clark and then pass on him. If I would have picked Clark, I would have been two people up, which means for the next couple of figures, um, Matt would have just been able to choose whoever he wanted. So I kind of sacrificed my William Clark pick because over the next couple weeks, next month even, there is another anniversary of a very 
famous gunfight. The shooting at the OK Corral. It sure was October twenty sixth. The OK Corral shootout, and I know that we're we're not covering Wyatt Earp because I don't know how many episodes Wyatt Earp is going to need, but it's going to be a few. Plan a couple so months, in, people. Plan a couple months. He, the man did a lot of things. So, yeah, um, I think I might even wait to do Wyatt Earp until the absolute last because he has so much to cover. He, do, he does a lot. But anyway, so next month, we're going to be covering two figures. One really wasn't in the OK Corral and one definitely was. Next time, we're going to be covering a man named Johnny Ringo. No, not the Ringo of the Beatles. Not that Ringo. It is not the drummer from the Beatles. Have you ever seen Tombstone, Matt? I have a couple times. I can't remember. What is is Doc Holliday's famous line? Uh, You can be my something. Huckleberry. Huckleberry, yeah. Who did he say that line to? I'm guessing that guy. Johnny Ringo. <laughs> so then after Johnny Ringo, we will then be covering Doc Holliday. Ooh. And this is all for to get ready for the shooting at the OK Corral. Yeah, we will drop uh, Doc Holliday. I'm trying to figure out how to get his episode down to two so we can actually hit the anniversary. But but yeah, that's that's our next couple of episodes. So that is me falling on my sword. Maybe that's cheating a little bit because I know who's coming up. So I think in the next couple of episodes when I'm going to do that, I'm just going to say who we're doing. So I don't feel like I'm cheating so much because I feel like I baited you. And I will say. Um, I think it's funny that you said we're not going to do multiple episodes of one figure and now we are doing multiple episodes of figures almost everyone i never said i was a hypocrite but i haven't (laughs) not said it either (laughs) oh yeah however that is it for the core of discovery five episodes and like what eight hours content roughly at least at least Maybe even nine. And we didn't even talk about it that much in this last episode. So I I think I've got it all up out of my system. We can now move on. People can hear me stop talking about the core of Discovery. And now we're going to be talking about like some lawman. Shooty shooty is what we're talking about. Yeah. The most so famous. These next episodes are going to go back to being a little exciting, huh? Yeah. What do you mean a little <laughs> exciting? The core of Discovery is exciting. How dare you? yeah but not in the exciting way of those were like if i just put them into movie genres like shooting and stuff action Mm -hmm. the other ones would be more adventure adventure yeah yeah but without like fighting (laughs) or a bad guy but anyways Remember, if you like what you heard today, go ahead and like and subscribe. Leave us a comment on whatever podcast service you are listening on. Uh, We really appreciate it. And you can always check out our website, ranking76.wordpress.com, where you will find a link to all of our social media, our email. You can see the scorecards. You can check out the other episodes you may have missed. Um, We really appreciate it. Until next time. I'm Eric. I'm Matt. See you later. Alligator.